Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Sandy Garasino, journalist with the National Observer, podcaster. Hello, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Hello to you. Sandy, today we are going to talk about the Supreme Court of Canada. They have upheld police access to journalists' files, which legally means I am now a cop. Pretty sure about that. Well, <laughs> we how, are also... can I, how can I put this politely? Witnesses are still witnesses. That's basically what the court said. You're not a cop. We are also going to talk about Justin Trudeau's independent report on Justin Trudeau's disastrous India trip, which contains a full and transparent account of exactly what went wrong, minus everything that's been redacted by Justin Trudeau. <laughs> I guess so. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Ian McKay, Ben Schnell, Jeff Farrell, L'Oreal Penny, Anna Lermer, Aurora Boren, Otavia Proper, and Cassie Rosen. My name is Cassie Rosen. I'm a technical consultant in Toronto, Ontario. I support Candleland because I care about critical thought and discussion about current events in media. 
Whether at home or abroad, Candleland is a great place for me to stay informed and engaged. I care about the Thunder Bay podcast, and I look forward to hearing more of this quality content in the future. And Sandy, this episode is also brought to everybody by Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn one's great idea into a reality. Have you a great idea that you would like to have transformed into a reality, Sandy? I have many great ideas I would like transformed into reality. Will Squarespace do that? Well, it's really funny you should ask me that question because yes, they will do that. They will make it simple. Uh, You can use any of their pre-made templates and forego the difficulty of creating and designing your own website. No, you can just basically just ride on the coattails of experienced designers. Just swipe their stuff basically and uh, substitute (laughs) your own information. You can have a great website in no time. You can have a website that works on all platforms. You've got award-winning customer support 24-7. It's just a good solution. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just need a website when you got a great idea and you want to get it out there. So head to squarespace.com slash CanadaLand for a free trial. When you are ready to launch, you could build the thing without giving them any money at all. But when you're ready to launch the site, use the offer code CanadaLand. You'll get 10% off of your first purchase of a website or a domain. Sandy, I would like to take our listeners in a journey through time back to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's delightfully entertaining trip to India. Do we have to? Oh, there was music, (laughs) there were costumes, there were pictures. It was an extravaganza for the senses. There was Bollywood. There were questions. There were really uh, concerning questions about what the hell happened there. I think I discussed them with you, actually. And when we have questions in Canada, goddammit, we make reports. We commission (laughs) reports. Reports are made, reports are released, and that's what happens. And And then they're redacted. And then they're redacted. And that's the first thing I want to say about this report. It is the new gold standard of redaction. Journalists are used to getting information late and redacted. That's how it goes. The system is totally broken. And usually when you're filing a freedom of information request, uh, when you're filing an ATIP, there are rules under which the party can redact things. And they break those rules routinely. They redact the parts that they don't want you to have. And then the ball's back in your court and you can appeal the redactions and you can challenge the system to grind uh, to your service once again. And maybe five years later, you'll get a ruling as to whether or not the redactions were accurate or not. So redactions are abused. But in this in this case, Sandy, there was no need to abuse the redaction procedure because, my goodness, they could redact for whatever reason they want. I give hats off to this marvel, this this accomplishment in redaction. First of all, They didn't call it redactions. They called it revisions because redactions sound so severe and people know what that is. So we have to call it something else. And they used asterisks, not big black bars. Well, those big black bars look so suspicious, don't they? Look at this. The government gave us this report and there are these big black bars through page after page. What are they hiding? So this is a wonderful new milestone in redaction. I mean revision. Because now, whether it's one word that's redacted or 15 pages, there's just three pretty little asterisks now. So that's that's wonderful, you know, but also I want to read this is the rationale under which the prime minister was able to redact or revise as set out at the beginning of this report. The prime minister is of the opinion that information in a report is information, the disclosure of which would be injurious to national security, national defense or international relations or is information protected by litigation privilege or by solicitor client privilege or the professional secrecy of advocates and notaries can all be redacted. In addition, 
The committee removed information for privacy considerations. All revisions are marked by three asterisks in the text of the report. So that is, you basically, if we don't like it, it can go. And because you don't know what's hidden, you couldn't possibly challenge the grounds under which it was removed. So this is a, a feat in secrecy. Well, I guess so. I mean, if what's the, it's just like, just asterisk the whole report. I mean, what is even the point? Because everything that the public wanted to know and should have been informed about was kept out of the report. So what's the point? I don't know. I, I got a lot out of this. I mean, look at this. Findings with respect to allegations of foreign interference. Wow. Foreign interference, that was something that uh, Daniel Jean, also operating in the, the cloak of darkness uh, as an off-the-record source, mm-hmm. national security advisor, he, uh, you know, told journalists that, that uh, yeah. you, you know, you got this all wrong. This is the Indian government. For you. This is the rogue elements in the Indian government that have been interfering in our affairs. So we, have we got to the bottom of that? Well, just read the report. Findings with respect to allegations of foreign interference. The committee finds that F1... Redacted, F2 redacted, F3 redacted, F4 redacted, F5 redacted, F6 redacted, the number 48 redacted. (laughs) But that, you know, again, look at your laundry list of what the circumstances are for redaction. I think international relations is a really big part of this. You know, it's it's funny. This story really kind of takes me back to, we had this conversation earlier. I'm a little bit anxious that this India trip, disastrous as it was, is going to reemerge in some form. It's going to be a zombie trip during the upcoming 2019 election. And it's easy to make light of all the redactions and everything and the disastrous state of Canada and India relations today. But I really think it's so essential and important for especially journalists who are covering this story to really bone up on what is happening in India and why there might be legitimate concerns about what is happening in India and what what's going on. Prime Minister Modi is effectively like an extremist white supremacist leader. That's the effect of what's happening. Um, He's pursuing a policy of what's called Hindutva, which is the supremacy of the Hindu religion, and Sikhs, which is a community that is very predominant in the South Asian community in Canada, are a tiny minority in India. And minorities are being vilified and attacked in India, and it's spilling over here. And Modi does not pull his punches, shall we say, and he's close to Newt Gingrich. He's close to the American Republican Party. He's close to this machine that is pursuing all of these things. And I think we should have our radar up about anything that comes out of India that makes allegations about Canadian policy or politicians relating to Sikhs in Canada. I'm really concerned that we're going to start to hear again about Sikh terrorists, even though we haven't had any issues about this in over 25 years. I would just put a flag in everybody's mind. Watch for this and be careful about it and get informed about what Modi is doing in that country. Press freedom in India is now in a disastrous state. They have been, they've just in their rankings, international press freedom rankings, they are now below Myanmar, just to give the Canadian public a little bit of a sense about 
the reliability of anything coming out of that country right now. Sandy, I think that that big picture analysis is necessary, but I think it can coexist with a small picture petty analysis. And I think I can straddle those two spheres. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, even what Daniel Jean was feeding to the press, it's probably accurate. And you can even infer, you say that we should inform ourselves about, yes, we should be on guard against foreign interference from this uh, Indian government, even though they redacted everything. So we like to inform journalists, but how can you inform yourself when everything is is redacted? But you can actually infer from the conclusions. They redact everything about whether or not this was all set up by the Indian government, as Daniel Jean was telling journalists that, you know, how do you think this Jaspal Atwal got a visa to India in the first place, given that he has a criminal record? How do you think he got onto the list of invitees? You know, obviously the Indian government played a role. This is a setup. This was there to make Canada look bad. There was a propaganda campaign to make Canada look bad and sympathetic to Khalistani extremism well before this trip ever happened. It's completely compatible with Modi's interests. Don't blame Mm -hmm. this on the PMO. Don't blame this on the PMO. We were set up. That narrative is totally plausible, but it coexists with the PMO blundering this terribly, which is what Jean was trying to deflect from. So that big picture needs to be looked at. And there is a connection to Canada and, you know, trying to make equivalencies between, you know, whatever sympathy there is for Khalistani independence amongst, uh, you know, Canadian Sikhs and terrorist, you know, radical separatism from Khalistani is a completely different thing. And, you know, to try to radicalize and politicize and, and target Canadian Sikh communities is deplorable and we should watch out for that. And that is happening. But the legitimate questions here that, that Jean was trying to deflect from yeah. and that this report is supposed to be dealing with are Daniel Jean's role in national security is supposed to be an apolitical role. He is not supposed to do anything for the party's interests and for and for the prime minister's political interests. And so his cover story, when it was exposed that he was the one feeding this narrative of rogue elements in the Indian government without providing any proof whatsoever to journalists and spinning them, and journalists were livid. They were saying, you know, I offered this guy confidentiality. I'm not going to give up his name, but God damn it, did they abuse this whole system. And people that mm-hmm. high up should not be feeding us information like this. And if I had known what he was going to feed us, I think David Aiken was saying this, I never would have given him confidentiality. You know, this was like a really dodgy instance of of how the information got to the public. And so the the questions afterwards that this report was supposed to deal with were, well, was Jean operating in a political capacity Uh or was he doing it in some other reason? And and his reasoning, and here we're going to talk about the media coverage of this, which is, you know, what we're supposed to do on this show. Uh, The Globe and Mail, I think, was a little bit too by the book in their reporting. You know, they, they give the reader a lot of credit for reading between the lines. And it's easy to skim over the actual the actual meaning of this. So their report on this concludes like, you know what, we're not going to comment on the report. We'll just quote the report. So this is the quote that the Globe and Mail report ended with. Mr. Jean's stated concern that foreign actors were undermining the reputation of respected public institutions is understandable. This was his cover story, Sandy. He's saying, I wasn't doing this for Justin Trudeau. I wasn't doing this for the Liberal Party. I was doing this because the RCMP and CSIS and Global Affairs Canada were all being smeared that they should have done a better job in preventing Atwell from being invited. And I had to stand up for them, not because it's political, but because those institutions were being undermined by these rogue elements in the Indian government. So the report concludes that each of those agencies, RCMP, CSIS, and Global Affairs Canada, denied that they had concerns about reputational damage. They weren't worried. Like, the translation of that is that his excuse is bullshit. Mm-hmm. That his him saying that he was doing this for all these institutions is not true. They don't feel that they needed that. He never spoke with them about it. Who did he speak to? He spoke to Gerald Butts. Okay. Mm -hmm. He Mm -hmm. he coordinated his efforts with the prime minister's right-hand man. And that was the party that did have reputational damage. That was the institution that did have egg on its face. And 
I think that what we can, even with the redactions, you can still take away from this report. Yeah, Daniel Jean was breaking the rules. He was acting politically when he fed this information to the press. And I, I, I don't know. I haven't seen that just like stated outright in any of the coverage. I think that's, I mean, that's kind of the obvious conclusion to make. I just feel like at the time it was such a fast moving river and the media in Canada was going nutso on this. And they were just quoting bizarre coverage coming out of India. The Indian press was just so over the top on this and and hysterical. It should never have happened. Jean went way, I completely agree with your assessment of how it all rolled out. I just feel like everybody was in panic mode and you're right. They were wrong, but I understand it. Hey, let, let Jerry Butts come out using his yeah, name. Jer- like, get Jerry. Right? <laughs> if you want to come and say, hey, media, you know, you're buying this, uh, you know, this state propaganda. This is bullshit. We were set up. Let him say that. But they, yeah. don't, they don't want to say, oh, we were set up because they don't want to look like they're, it's possible to set them up. I and mean, the whole thing is just a, like a total clusterfuck. But Well, wouldn't it be nice to just close the door on it? But I'm sure all the opposition parties want nothing. <laughs> Lots of people want to keep that door open. After all that sturm and drang, I mean, you know, after all the noise, after like just copious, copious reporting on this, don't you want a conclusion? Like, like the conclusion is that the rules were broken. I mean, like, shouldn't we put a fine point on this? Yes. And you do that, Jesse. <laughs> and she patted him on his head. Deservedly. I'm with you. No, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yes, you're right. You are 100% right. Sandy, that is all I ever wanted from you. It's a Hanukkah miracle. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them 
treat addiction, and build hope. Sandy, let's duly note, why don't we? Have you something that you think deserves wider attention to duly note? Well, I mean, this is this is something that actually is already getting wider attention, which is the Raj Gruel, the MP who has gambling debts and who resigned, then disresigned, and he's back and nobody knows what's going to happen. But one of the things that I think is important about how this story is covered is for media and commentators to be a little bit more blunt about the dangers and threats of what's happened here. I mean, it kind of all speaks for itself. As somebody who had and then suddenly mysteriously paid off millions of dollars in gambling debts, someone who pursued the age-old pattern of gambling addicts of stripping out his family and friends of their assets and then suddenly has paid them off mysteriously and won't disclose who provided this, uh, the funds for this. This is a gambling addict. Gambling addicts are national security risks because they can be blackmailed. It's the same thing that we're seeing in the United States where, you know, Michael Flynn lied to the FBI and was immediately flagged as being compromised because he could be blackmailed. Somebody who owes millions of dollars to somebody else and won't disclose who it is is a blackmail risk. And I think that we don't very often talk about how corruption really works and how to guard against it. But one of the things that we should do in Canada is talk about that more because it stares us in the face every day. I hadn't even thought about that. Where did he get the money? Part of me always just thinks like whenever, like, so he's got a gambling problem. You know, people are human, but why does this affect his ability to be an effective legislator or, or, or how does this affect his job? I guess that's how, or potentially that's how. Man, I would not wish upon my worst enemy the life of an elected official. Like, it just, you know, I think he does owe us uh, some answers about that uh, in a way that, you know, regular people get to be private, you know? It's totally unacceptable. I spend a lot of time dealing with um, gambling and casino issues here in British Columbia. And I'm not like, you know, some blue stocking who really, you know, cares a lot about it. But I was really stunned by the risks, the public policy risks that gambling addiction poses. I hadn't been aware of them before we went down this rabbit hole here in British Columbia. And again, we, we stare this stuff in the face in the United States all the time. It's the blackmail risk. Duly noted. I got a quick one. And? The Canadian press ran a story about the uh, Vice Admiral Norman case, and the headline touched Stephen Harper. The headline was, Harper's approval needed to release some files requested in the Norman case, which is kind of an interesting new angle, dragging uh, Stephen Harper into this, where he'll play this role of, of either approving or not the release of these files to figure out what the heck happened there with this complicated case of this Navy ship procurement that involves the Irving family. And I still don't know the full story. And anyhow, Stephen Harper, who is, you know, back in the news cycle and I think pretty uh, sensitive about how his legacy is discussed, got rattled by this story and uh, tweeted, this story is false and should be corrected. I have indicated no objection to the release of any document relevant to the Norman case. This is a transparent effort to deflect attention from the current government. So he also politicizes this. And there is nothing in the story which accurately says that his approval will be needed to release these files. Nothing in that story suggests 
that he has objected to the release of the documents. It's just saying he's going to have to either object or approve. Mm -hmm. And I just like, I get so grossed out by how easy it is for politicians to throw journalists under the bus and to, you know, it's a big thing to say this story is false and you're the former prime minister of Canada. Somebody wrote that, the reputation is on the line. You don't get to wave your fake news wand over every headline that displeases you. And to their credit, uh, Heather Schofield, editor of the Canadian Press, tweeted back, hello, Mr. Harper, with respect, please note this article does not say you objected. If you'd like to discuss this with us, please respond to one of the many requests for comment we sent your way before (laughs) and after publication. Boom. And I I love that. I love that. It's polite. It's forceful. It reveals something. To the point. He could have had, he could have given a quote, you know, and it's always these people, you always find out that they, they stonewalled the press and then they don't like how they were spoken of in the press afterwards. Well, tough shit. Maybe Ben Shapiro could have got the answer out of him. (laughs) To our listeners, uh, Stephen Harper, notoriously difficult to pin down for an interview by Canadian press, won't sit down for a no rules interview with, uh, unless, you know, the guidelines are strictly negotiated beforehand with any Canadian podcaster or news source, did so with American right-wing podcaster Ben Shapiro, that obnoxious twerp, because he's on his book tour. So... That is an explanation of Sandy's killer zing. (laughs) Duly noted. All right. Well, this has been brewing for years now. And Ben McCoo has been on this program a couple of times. Ben McCoo, the reporter for Vice, to talk about his ongoing legal troubles with the RCMP. I will try to provide a, uh, a quick summary. Essentially, he got in touch in 2014 with a former Calgary resident named Farah Mohammed Shirdan, one of these kids who went and joined ISIS and was kind of a blabbermouth and, and was sort of an interesting character in that he was like, yeah, dude, I'm with ISIS. It was the kind of these bizarre uh, series of interviews. And of course, Shane Smith came and grabbed the mic away from all the other vice people and then interviewed uh, Sheridan. But when it ends up in court, it's uh, it's Ben McHugh and not Shane Smith. Yeah. Essentially, the RCMP said, you've been in touch with an ISIS member? You've got to hand over all your files. And Ben McCoo, as as I think any reporter should, refused to provide that information to the authorities. And Vice has had his back, and they have been uh, fighting this through the courts, through the appellate courts. Uh, but, you know, basically, they have made a Supreme Court issue out of this, and finally, we have the ruling from the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, "Yeah, he's got to hand over those files." Sandy, have you read the ruling? I have. And just for background's sake, I'm also a former uh, Crown Prosecutor, so I've got a little bit of insight and experience with this. So, yes, I have read the ruling. Vice has declared this a dark day for journalism. They have said that this absolutely compromises the ability for journalists to do their work. Ben, on his appearances on this show, has said this essentially turns journalists into an arm of law enforcement. It provides a serious disincentive for any source to give information to journalists if journalists are just going to be compelled upon to just hand over the information. Do you agree? Is this a dark day for journalism and are the implications as severe as that? Well, I think the biggest clue in this case is that not one of the 13 superior or appellate court judges who heard this case agrees with Vice's position on this. This was a unanimous ruling by the Supreme Court of Canada, which has taken 
generally speaking, an expansive view of the Charter of Rights in recent years. And it was a unanimous ruling by the Ontario Court of Appeal and, of course, the first judge who heard the challenge of the original order. To give a little bit of framing to this, you could go back to the earlier court rulings. This is not, this case does not by any stretch tighten the law or the restrictions on journalistic freedom in Canada. In fact, I would say that this case was pretty much a very clear example of when an order for discovery of documents by the police should apply. The fundamental principle here was laid out by Mr. Justice Binney in the National Post decision back in the 90s, and he said, the public has the right to every person's evidence. That is the general rule. That's why you and I as private citizens, Joe Blow, Jane Doe, everybody can be subpoenaed or can be compelled by the police to provide evidence where where they've got their warrants. But there has been an exception to this, which is press freedom. Mm-hmm. So, and that's not an absolute exception. It is, the courts have made it clear, this is a case by case. You look at the circumstances of the particular case. In this case, the court said, look, this witness, there was nothing confidential about what this witness provided. There was no confidential information. This witness literally wanted publicity for his point of view. There was nothing particularly to be protected here. In law, there is a best evidence rule which compels police or anybody to provide the court with the very best evidence that there is. What the courts were after, what what the police were after, were the original text messages which would have corroborated the statements that were made. So in balancing everything, the court says, look, you have to look at each individual case. You have to balance things. And there is another issue of concern, which is do we give the media notice that we're applying for a warrant to obtain this information? And that's another area where the courts did say, look, you you really want to try and, and protect the notice provision if you can. I think that you could read this, and it has been read, as something that actually is good for the press in that I was a little bit surprised to read in the ruling the Supreme Court giving so much consideration for journalistic practices of communication, saying this was not off the record nor not for attribution. We would have cared. We would have paid a lot of attention. If you had been working with this source as a not for attribution source or off the record, we would have have weighed that. But that wasn't your relationship with Sheridan. And because he wanted to have his point of view out there uh, and, and Ben McCoo has said, I published all the good stuff. There's nothing Mm -hmm. in here that you guys really need anyhow. So unless he's saying I've offered this source confidentiality or it was partially confidential, the the courts are saying that's all important stuff, but it doesn't apply to this case. So I I get the argument, you know, and I also hear what you're saying, Sandy, that like this wasn't in Vice fighting this and Ben McCoo fighting this and then all these interveners because a lot of other media came and said, we're going to be on side. This was not them saying, hey. Law enforcement is encroaching upon press freedom. We have to stand the line. They, I think, were mounting this defense to extend press freedom. 
in the hopes that the Supreme Court would actually give more rights to journalists. I would say so on the facts of this case, yeah. Right. Arguably, that actually worked a little bit because there is this kind of like now entrenched from the Supreme Court and lower courts will take, you know, okay, now we need to look. Uh, I was talking to one head of a newsroom in an on-background conversation, so I won't say who, who says, oh, this is great. This gives me some guidance. Now we'll just make sure that all conversations begin as confidential sources. So we can then later determine what's going to be on the record. And if it ever gets subpoenaed, we'll have that defense. So this Mm -hmm. actually gives guidance to journalists. That's one side of this. I'm going to suggest to you the other side, which is, it was argued by Vice that the very act of a journalist being seen to turn over records to the police for the police to prosecute that journalist's source is sufficiently serious that it is going to hurt the ability of the media to gather news and report stories in the public, that it's going to have a chill effect, that just the fact that you've got this reporter talking to somebody, getting information, and then just handing it over to the cops so that the cops can go after this guy, Sherdon, who might be dead for all we know, he's sort of in the wind, but that itself could legitimately chill press access to sources and and sources' willingness to talk to the press. The court dismissed that concern I think that's a legitimate concern. What do you think? Well, the courts didn't dismiss the concern. The courts did say they're mindful of the chill effect, and that's why this is a question of discretion. This is about the judge's discretion. And, of course, now we have new federal legislation which requires that it be a superior court judge that hears these applications for warrants relating to media I would disagree with Vice's take on this. The law has been clear for quite a long time that the courts are not going to give an absolute protection to the press. And in fact, in 2010, in the National Post decision, again, Justice Binney said, no journalist can give a secret source an absolute assurance of confidentiality. The courts generally will respect the press, but there isn't an absolute right on this. And, you know, we always, we tend in Canada to be really, I think, too much governed by general perceptions about how constitutional law is uh, ruled on and determined in the United States, where once the, if you have a right, it's an absolute right, and that's that. In Canada, you know, we're always balancing rights. The Charter of Rights are not absolute. They're constrained by Section 1, which allows for limitations that are reasonably justified in a free and democratic society. And I think that the general public would tend to view, look, if you've got a terrorist, a Canadian terrorist who could be returning to Canada, and he has made these admissions that he does look for jihad, he is looking to blow up and attack and kill the public, this person is uh, a clear and present threat to the Canadian public and to everyone everywhere. And up against that, if we're going to balance things out, this wasn't a confidential source, there wasn't confidential information, there wasn't an agreement not to attribute. Uh, we got to balance all these things and we're going to come down on the side of public safety. So I think that we in Canada would do well to remember that our Charter of Rights is not an absolutist document. No rights are absolute in the Charter. They are always to be 
balanced against competing interests and and they can be trumped. And in this case, they were. That's fine from a legal point of view. From a journalistic practice point of view, it is absolutely offered by journalists doing investigations on the regular when they are trying to compel sources to speak with them. I will never give up your name. Well, they should tell the truth then. They should tell the truth then. They can't. Well, and they shouldn't be telling witnesses that, or they shouldn't be telling sources that. That they is can easy. Say, that's easy for the courts to say. If you actually are trying to investigate stories, those types of promises are made all the time. I take your point that even the journalists might not be aware. Well, there actually is a circumstance where even if you offer complete anonymity to a source, the courts might compel you. That's right. To hand this over, so you should, unless you're prepared to go to jail, you should not be offering that to sources. Or you can say, in my opinion, you can say as a journalist, you know, I am going to fight absolutely to protect this. And you can count on me and you can count on this publication to have your back and we will do everything to protect your identity and to protect you. But I can't offer you an absolute assurance that under no circumstances will the will law enforcement be unable to get at this information. I think that's actually important for everyone to know. And I think it's important for journalists to be accurate in what they say to sources. I think so. But I think that, you know, if you do compare that to uh, an environment where journalists can promise that they will never give up that name and have the law on their side, that is a comparison between two different environments, one of which is a better environment for practicing journalism and one and one is worse. You know, Jesse, when was it that journalists could accurately promise that they would never have to give that up? I looked at the legal history on this and it has never been the case. I mean, the case in this country, no... in this country. Yes. Yeah, it has never been the case. That hasn't been the case. So I think there's been a certain amount of wishful thinking on the part of journalism as to what what they want the law to be, but they should be accurate with sources about what the law is and what constraints they operate under. You know, I I actually, I'm I'm pushing back on this because I think, again, we have to get back to what is the fundamental legal principle here, which is that, you know, look at what's happening in the States right now, where all of these witnesses are being compelled to come and give testimony either in Congress or to Bob Mueller. And their only protection is to take the fifth, a protection that we don't have in Canada. Mm -hmm. It is the law that witnesses who have in are in possession of information that on reasonable and probable grounds is probative in a criminal case, they must produce that. You know what, Sandy, I don't want to get too academic in this because, in fact, as a result of this ruling... Journalists are in better shape, arguably, when it comes to using confidential sources. And there's this this other legislation that you make mention of as well, that there's actually a separate piece of legislation that codifies and recognizes confidential sources. The big upshot, I think, of this is that it used to be that when you were dealing with sources, you would want them on the record more than anything. And they would say, you know, Mm -hmm. can I go off the record? And you would try to talk them into being on the record because that's going to strengthen your story to have an on-the-record source. I think that Mm -hmm. the way that this actually is going to affect journalistic practices, as mentioned earlier, you're going to want there to be some level of confidentiality to your exchange uh, so that if you need to, you can point to that if you're ever asked by law enforcement to hand this stuff over. That's going to have an impact on things. That's going to change the way investigators do their job. You know, this this hypothetical situation 
of uh, being, you know, forced to actually hand over a confidential source is sort of this, uh, you know, archetypal journalistic quandary where even if the law is against you, journalists like to kind of say, I would go to jail on that because you're only as good as your protection of your sources. If you give up your sources, no one's going to ever give you information again. Yeah. This isn't that case. Um, I did ask Ben McCoo in a previous uh, appearance, the first time I think he was on the show to talk about this. Uh, what the worst case scenario is for him. Here's what he said when I asked him, you know, what's the worst case scenario? What's the worst case scenario for you? Um, if we're fighting the production order, if we fail and I don't give over my information, they'll ask me to, which I'll refuse. There's a possibility where it could be either uh, jail or a fine. So, yeah, there's, there's a possible bleak outcome. I don't think so. I hope mm-hmm. not. I hope our country is better than that. So. Ben McCoo may very well be now in that position of having to hand over his files or face jail time. I, I don't think that this is a case worth, you know, uh, symbolically going to jail for. I, you know, I, I think Ben probably will just hand over his files and I don't think anyone could find fault with him for that. I don't think so. And I, and I think that, well, I just, I just think it's important to always remember there's proportionality here. It's balancing. And, and this is almost like your textbook case, isn't it? The person he's seeking to protect here is the worst of the worst. and Except that they're known. We know their name. We know who they are. There's no one to protect. Well, exactly. But the, I mean, this gets, you know, this goes down the rabbit hole of evidentiary rules, which is that the police need the actual texts. They need that because otherwise it's, it could be argued that there's hearsay or there was doctoring of the tape or any of that kind of thing. You know, so it's, it's, it, it's really an evidentiary point, but that's kind of inside legal baseball, as it were. You know what, Sandy, when it comes to court challenges to press freedom, the cases that I'm really looking at where I think that there's a lot more hanging in the balance are the uh, the Justin Brake case, mm-hmm. uh, Justin Brake of APTN and Patrick Legasse, who was spied on by the cops. I mean, what the outcomes of those are, yeah. I think are going to have a lot more to say about press freedom in Canada. Yeah. Anyhow, that is your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Sandy Garasino, people want to hear more from you. Where can they do that? They can read me at the National Observer and on Twitter at Garasino. We have a website. It has uh, a little makeover you might want to check out. It's very pretty. Go to CanadaLandShow.com. And when you're there, you can check out this week's episode of Oppo. It's amazing, Sandy. Everybody loves this week's episode. The left, the right, everybody loves Oppo. It's amazing. <laughs> check it out. This episode, produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do and want to receive ad-free versions of our podcasts, please support us on Patreon. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.